Um, so yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. We are yeah, very happy to be bringing uh, Sarah Utin and Beth French to you tonight. And um, as usual, just give you a little quick, short few minutes of introduction into the First Women Project, um, why I decided to do it, uh, and um, how, how things have panned out since then, really. So I was approaching my 50th birthday. I have been a photographer all my life. And I got to the point where I was thinking, what am I going to be remembered for? What is my legacy? Uh, what am I going to leave behind in a photographic way? And there was, um, it was almost like an, a light bulb moment. Uh, I kept hearing about first women doing amazing things on the radio and in the news. And so I thought, I'll make a series of portraits, a hundred portraits to celebrate a hundred years of women winning the right to vote. And I gave myself 10 years. So I started in 2008 as I approached my 50th birthday and I, I pulled it all off amazingly. Sometimes I still have to pinch myself and think, how did I actually do this? Um, in 2018, launched the exhibition at the Royal College of Art. We had nearly, I think 360 people at the opening night. It was just an most incredible buzz. Um, and Sarah and Beth met there, I think for the first time, as, along with uh, 65 other first women and about 20 of, of the relatives of the women, sadly, who'd passed away, the other first that passed away. So you can just imagine the energy and the buzz in that room. And it was, I just was like completely on cloud nine. Um, so that's how it all started. Uh, perhaps we can show the, the slideshow now. That'd be great. Yeah, so I've, I've explained all about that. So the next slide, please. Oops. So this um, black and white photograph is from 1906. This is my great grandmama, Annie. I never met her, but I do feel that I have been, she's been guiding me along the way. And I feel very much that I've channeled um, what she hoped for as a, as a woman in the early 1900s would, would develop in the next hundred years. And um, so I do hear her in my head saying, we must celebrate this, you know, how far we have come, the impact that women have made on the world since we won the right to vote. And so I set off to create a collection that was as diverse as possible across all walks of life, across all occupations, across all ages, all races, and as many different corners of the UK as I possibly could get to. I did do 100,000 miles and the result, as I say, was a launched exhibition in uh, London, um, a photographic book, which has been a limited edition, but is now sold out. So those that have got uh, your book, you are you're going to be it's going to be so valuable in the next 10 years. You'll be able to sell it on eBay. And we are um, traveling the exhibition It's actually been um, in seven different venues now and we've got more lined up for next year. So we just closed in Exeter and we had nearly, uh, nearly well, 16,375 visitors in, the, in 10 weeks. And that was during over the nine month period, which was obviously affected by three lockdowns, um, COVID restrictions, et cetera. So that was really pretty um, a great result. And that brings a total of visitors that have seen the exhibition to around uh, 130,000 in three years. Uh, so let's go on to our women that we've got tonight. So Sarah Utin is, as you can see there, my first first. So 
after I'd conceived this idea, I decided that I didn't want to have the first woman to be selected by me. I actually threw it up into the air, into chance, and I Googled the word first women. And Sarah Ooten was just about to start her, her challenge to be the first woman to row solo across the Indian Ocean. And it was the summer of 2009. I was in Vancouver, Canada. She was in the middle of um, the ocean near Australia. And we communicated through digital communications. I asked her, I was, I was very nervous that she'd say no, but she said, yes, I asked her if she would be my first first. And she wonderfully said yes. And we arranged to meet up as soon as possible once she'd um, completed her, her challenge. And we met in the November that year. And in fact, this picture was taken on, on the boat that she, I think it was called Serendipity. Um, so Serendipity um, was the boat that, she, that started the, the portrait for my first women collection. And we had a very misty morning in November when we took this picture. And it was a huge milestone for me. And one of the reasons why I was so happy to photograph Sarah was because she, if I, I thought if she could do this at, at 24, become the first woman and the youngest person to, to row solo across the Indian Ocean, then surely I could travel around the UK and, and photograph all these amazing inspirational women. So I took great, great inspiration from Sarah's achievement, physical, mental, emotional achievement that she did during that, that first year when I was you know, just about birthing my project. Um, and, and next we have, so we have, um, this is an endurance swimmer who's Beth French. Beth French is um, very local to me, actually. She, she's a Somerset woman. And this picture was taken nearby in um, Branscombe, on the beach at Branscombe. And um, I had a real vision for uh, this picture. I, I wanted to capture the physical strength of women um, to celebrate the sort of, just the physicality of women. And I, I we did lots of different photographs and different angles in the water. And um, in the end, I just said, you know, could she stand, could best stand in such a way that she was almost like a goddess coming out of the water. And I was so absolutely thrilled to see this picture when I got back and put, up, put the images into the, to the computer. Um, just that whole feeling of, of the strength and the power um, is very important to me to, to connect with, with that, with, with women in that way and to celebrate that the strength and the power of our bodies. Um, so yeah, it was a big, big win, this picture as well. And even better was uh, Dylan, her son, who was about five or six then, he was an absolutely brilliant assistant and helped me do the lighting. Um, we were on the right on the edge of the water and <laughs> I did have to, I think it did get wet, Try, uh, the tripod probably got a bit wet too, but it was just, just captured that energy and essence of power. Um, so that's a little bit of background into those two women. So next slide, please. As I said, yeah, we're, we've closed next to now, but we will be back on tour next year. Um, so that just brings us to the end of a little introduction. We will, um, as you know, we, we have um, uh, the introduction, Beth French and Sarah Ooten will, will introduce themselves. And then we will have, I'll have a start off with a few questions from um, general questions that we have, but we also want to have your questions, most importantly, to ask, for you to ask the two women, the two first women, or I can ask them for you. 
So please get your questions ready and put them into the chat box. And um, now let's uh, reveal our firsts. If you'd like to, Sarah and and Beth, please uh, reveal yourselves in through the audio and through your. Yay! There we go. There hello, we go. hello. <laughs> Yay! Welcome, first, first. And Beth is there too. So yes, yeah, Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Yes. Hello, everyone. I am Sarah, a slightly older version than that young-faced one you just saw in the picture there, as Anita revealed. I had a real stomach-turning, um, just this sort of wonderful energy, remembering and, and feeling sitting on the boat in that way and feeling sort of nervous and excited to, to be there with my boat. I think most, not because I was nervous um, about being with Anita, I think she puts everyone at ease so wonderfully, but more because at that point, I was still quite fresh off the back of this huge project in which I'd spent four months totally alone on my little boat. And I was still finding people, um, you know, quite intense after after all that time at sea so I remember sitting on my boat and and holding on to the oar and you can see in the picture <clears throat> you might not remember it but my toes are wrapped around the oar and uh, for me that was sort of a feeling of comfort and security that I was connected to my my boat which had, had just been my teammate and, and lifeline for for four months so in terms of introducing myself oh I always find these a bit awkward um I I don't do adventures in quite the same way that I used to now that I'm a little bit older and I suppose more settled. I, I used to really resist the idea of, of being settled when people said, so you settled down now, now Sarah, but I realize I am more settled <clears throat> and that's a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm married to my wife, Lucy, and we have three donkeys and we live in Oxfordshire and I'm currently training as a, as a psychotherapist. In, in between that picture in 2009 and I guess this point in my life now, um, I did have some really big adventures. I, <clears throat> off the back of that Indian Ocean journey, I decided that uh, an around the world journey was what I wanted and, and needed and that now at that point, you know, was, was the time to make it happen. Uh, which clearly it was, given that now, a few years later, I'm, I'm very settled and going around the world by rowing boat, bike and kayak for four and a half years. Um, it is not, is not exactly on my agenda, but I, I rode and I cycled and, and kayaked 25,000 miles around the Northern Hemisphere. I keep looking up behind the computer because we've got a big world map behind there. Um, and, and that journey was similar to the Indian Ocean in as much as um, I was out seeking adventure and, and challenge and learning and connection and so on. Um, but I also realise now <laughs> in, in having written a book about that journey and made a film, which we released in 2019, it's a film called Home, ironically, um, I realised I was sort of running away from things and, and myself too. So I, we were discussing just before this had, before we came online that um, uh, Beth and I were both recognizing in our own different films of our own different sort of adventures that we have changed, that we don't fully recognize ourselves in, in those films. So that's a little bit about me, where I am now and where I've been. And I'm very glad to be here tonight. 
um, joining in with us. It's a fantastic project that Anita has curated and created mm -hmm. over the years. And I think this is such a cool um, sort of follow on and, and um, continuation of that journey in bringing people together and, and sharing the stories. And also just kudos Anita, when you said that there's been what, 163,000 people since uh, about 130 something yeah yeah 130 140. once we get into the hundreds of thousands yeah. wow. just yeah, really yeah, that's, that's really cool and to to sort of um just wonder at, at how people connect with and uh moved by and inspired by all of those um images and stories that's that's thank really you. great thank you yeah i mean amazing feedback from so many people um you know really emotional responses as they walk in the room and yeah, it's been, it is, it's just still an amazing feeling to, to have pulled it all together and mm -hmm. to also co to connect all of you because there's a lot of spin-offs, there's a lot of networking going on and that is fantastic, you know, where you hear other first women getting together with other first women that they wouldn't have known about, their paths would never have crossed. So I'm very happy. Okay, let's go to Beth French um, and give us a little bit about your life and times, please. Okay, so my um, I'm Beth, and um, I'm so still humbled and a bit bewildered to be included in the First Women Project by Anita, because all I really did in my head was go for a little swim, and um, my little swim was actually quite a big swim that I've been told, because it was, you know, the first time anybody had made it from Cornwall all the way to the Isles of Scilly. Um, and I think my sort of adventure story is a little bit different to a lot of people that I've met through the adventure world because um, as a kid, I got very, very ill and had ME and ended up in a wheelchair when I was 17. So I had this whole kind of health journey that happened beforehand. And then I did a lot of sort of self work and um, lots of training in body work and became a therapist and had my own business. And then I had a child, which I was told that I probably would never be able to. And it was at that point that I decided I needed to prove to myself that I could still test my boundaries, that being a mum wasn't um, uh, a reduction in life. And that also that I was terrified of getting ill as a mum. I didn't want my son to be a carer. So I felt I, I felt compelled to test my boundaries, to push myself, to prove to myself that I, I could trust my body to do this thing called motherhood, because, you know, it, it taxes you and it can be quite stamina inducing. So I set about um, doing the biggest and most scariest thing on my bucket list, which was to swim to France. And that was initially what I set myself out to do. If I was going to climb a mountain, it would be Mount Everest. And, and uh, the English Channel is the Everest of swims. So I set myself a, a challenge as a young single mum, young 30, but new single mum, I should say, um, to challenge myself to do something that was so far out of the norm for most people, let alone for me, um, and, and end up found finding that I, I loved it I loved the process of doing it to me it wasn't about um choosing whether I was a mother or not to me it was this kind of combining this blending of learning to be a version of me that was a mother that engaged my child in learning those things about reliance resilience uh, determination fulfilling your dreams um love of outdoors and exercise and I mean, I, when he was three, I used to put him in a little wetsuit and attach a little dinghy to my ankle with a board leash and put him in there with some snacks and a little life vest and a water pistol. And he would point down the coast where I would then swim and he would squirt me in the face if I stopped. And it was the best training that I could have had because to 
use my version of motherhood um, as my training, as you know, engaging with my mind to, to train my mind as well as my, my body meant that the English Channel, when I came to it, wasn't the harrowing experience everyone expected me to have. And, and I loved it. Um, so that kind of triggered in me um, a little fetish for, for seeing where I could swim. And if I could see it, I could swim it. That was my mantra. So um, I swam between two islands in Hawaii and then the one uh, for which I'm featured, I decided that, you know, obviously if other people had swum these distances before and between these, there was an infrastructure set up. So if I'd done the training and waited for the right weather, of course you can swim it. So I wanted to see, obviously if I hadn't tried hard enough to push myself, could I do something that nobody would ever done before? And I asked my friends, um, you know, where should I swim? What should I do? I want to do something kind of slightly closer to home. Um, my little boy had, um, it had become obvious that my little boy had special needs. He's autistic with complex um, learning difficulties. So I wanted to do something close to home. And a friend of mine said, oh, why don't you swim, you know, the Isles of Scilly? And I said, well, you can go on holiday and swim between the islands. She said, no, 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 swim to the Isles of Scilly. And I was like, oh, that, that, that's quite fun. And get out a map and you know, it's 27 miles and it's against the ocean current. Is it possible to do? And, and that's what, for me, the whole challenge became was not, you know, am I the best swimmer or the fastest swimmer? It's not, um, you know, to beat myself up. It's, it's enjoying the challenge of seeing what's possible and, yeah, seeing where it takes you, which has been amazing. So, yes, like Sarah myself, I've had um, a bit of a crazy time since that picture was taken by going a little bit wild, doing a bit of a round the world tour myself. There's a challenge called Ocean Seven, which is seven channels around the world, which is the swimming equivalent of um, mountaineering seven summits. So I set myself a challenge to see if I could do that all in a single year. And, and that was turned into a film called Against the Tides, which a lot of the time it felt like I was swimming against the tides, um, which I'm so proud of that, that 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 is now out there for people to sort of enjoy and, and take stories from. and. You know, I think for like like Sarah was saying, I've I've changed so much since that happened. Uh, I finished that project in 2017, and looking back at the growth that's happened, and then engaging with people who come to my story anew is such a fascinating process to share from my perspective different versions of motherhood and different versions of of what lives can be led is is just wonderful. So that's me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is just, yeah, both of you. I mean, I'm absolutely totally in awe of your power and strength and your physical, mental, and emotional capacities. And as I said in, the, in, the, in my introduction, it's really all the first women that have inspired me in different ways to pull this whole thing together. So um, we have, I have a question for you. Uh, so you were talking, Beth, maybe straight to you. Uh, you. You said, what could you describe the feeling that you get when you know you have to do this crazy thing and there's no way that you cannot do it. Could you just describe that feeling? So I have this thing where I have to be very careful about um, telling anybody if I have an idea of something that I want to do, because it, whilst it's still in my head, it's still very much an abstract. And, you know, I can imagine doing it and that's fine and, and that's great and that's a little dream. But if I voice it, it's like I give birth to it already and it's like my, my, my energy comes out with my words and it's like I've said it because I want to do it and therefore I'm going to do it. There is no kind of chain that can be broken. It's I've said it and therefore it's going to happen or I'm going to see what happens if I try. I don't mind. I don't think 
um, if you try and do something, if you try and live a dream, that there is any such thing as failure. I think if you voice something that you want to do and you follow that, wherever it takes you is success. You might learn something that you, you change your mind or you might learn, you know, that the, the water might spit you back out. You might not make the other side. Whatever you do from that point is success. So it's 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 like a snowball rolling down the hill. You know, you, you if once I've voiced it, I have to be very, very cautious and careful about voicing things because, yeah, it is a compulsion to to catch it. But then I also am feeling very contented at the moment, having really pushed myself. I don't know if Sarah feels this of kind of really pushing myself to the point of where, you know, I often thought I was going to break. Now feeling that settled bit. Yes, if I'm caught by something, I, I go and do it. But I also don't feel compelled to search for those things to be caught by, which I used to. So now I'm enjoying, if I get a wild hair, um, I go, oh, that would be fun to do. And I go and do it. But, but they're much more sort of manageable now. I don't feel like I've got to rush out and find the next thing. Very good. And yes, let's ask Sarah that question. How are you feeling now that you can look back on your amazing achievement? Yeah, I think I identify with what Beth said there about um, more manageable versions of, of whatever it is I was seeking within those big journeys. Um, because I, I did push myself to breaking point and beyond. And I think one of my greatest learnings from, from all of that was that I need to really kind of value um, value my body. It feels like I was late to the party that it sounds like you got to way before me, Beth, through your sort of earlier health journeys in terms of, you know, really realizing how to, um, how to look after your body and, and what was needed there. Because I think for me growing up, a big influence on my life was my dad and the fact that my dad had really severe rheumatoid arthritis. And so from a young age, I saw very clearly what it was to not be able to do the things that you loved and I think I I had a slightly warped sense of what that meant because I thought that meant right I've got a body I've got to make the most of it and so I ran it ragged and um you know I could get through things by the skin of my teeth it felt like but I I took that as being yeah this is great I'm I'm doing it and carrying on whereas finishing that big expedition it's taken a good few years to um come back to a place of balance and wellness and health and now that for me is is the ultimate sort of success and the thing that I am not willing to compromise on um, and I've I've always known that I can find adventure in um, sort of more local places or less extreme places and versions of, of some of those big journeys that I've done and um, that is that is where I get my kicks from these days whilst also looking back on the journey with um, huge pride and um, kind of warmth for some of the things I experienced and the people I met, real curiosity at, <laughs> at the version of me that did push myself so hard and, and some of the decisions that I made. I mean, hooray for learning and evolution and growth um, in recognizing that, yeah, I made some pretty reckless decisions at times but also seeing with compassion that they made sense to me at the time and that was me doing the best that I could at that time um, with you know the values and and goals and sense of myself in the world that I had had then um, there's a line in a poem um, by Alfred Lord Tennyson so the, the poem is Ulysses and he's looking back on his life you know towards the end of his life and 
one of the lines is, I am a part of all that I have met, much have I seen and known. And I love that sense that all of those experiences, the highs, the lows, the messy bits, the, the squiggly bits, everything in between, that that is a part of who I am now and, and the next version of me that I become as, as we sort of morph through it. And I'm really grateful for that journey and for, for the younger version of me, for having the um, naivety and courage and determination and stubbornness to go and try and make that happen. <laughs> Um, for yeah, all it has given me. You certainly got very close in, on several occasions, didn't you? To, you know, to being swept away in a tropical storm, and I mean, uh, you know, very, very, very risky situations which you had to pay for later. Yeah, um, both metaphorically and physically. <laughs> um, I've, I'm really good at losing boats on oceans, apparently. Um, and, and I think. Uh, what was I about to say there? It's just gone out of my head. So you said, you know, you, you came very close to, I like, came very close to being swept away and, and so on. It's really interesting when talking about sort of the danger and the risk and, and so on of the journey and, and the times when I, yeah, did come pretty close to, to not being okay. In fact, the, the greatest risk, I think, not, it wasn't being out on the ocean in a tropical storm all alone and a thousand miles from from help i think the the times when i actually was probably closest to to not not making it out the other side was through versions of the way that i was pushing my body it was kind of an inner thing rather than an external thing so um i had an anaphylactic reaction coming off the back of the pacific on my second attempt and all the allergies that kind of came with that and, and followed through, actually, they, they were the biggest danger to me for quite a few years. Um, and separately, the kind of the inner storms, I, um, I, I had sort of post-traumatic stress following uh, some of those big ocean incidents and the, the deep, dark places that I was driven to in, in that place where I wanted to, to take my life. They were, you know, I see those as, as bigger risks. So it's interesting, isn't it, that the biggest risk actually I perceive as, as coming from, from myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it was, you know, I, and also obviously I, I knew you from 2009 and I saw at a distance those different phases in your, in your career, mentality, emotion, and it was, you know, very tumultuous. Having connected with you when you were in the Indian Ocean, you know, blogging with your Tweedlefish, and it was such a wonderful introduction to your adventure then, um, and obviously 24-year-old you. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I do feel I've, you know, I've been there at a distance watching that whole experience, and you look amazing now, and you're obviously in a completely fabulous, chilled-out place, which is great. Thank you. Yeah, so it's very special to have you here. Um, so Beth, I expect we, we've got you probably have had a few dangerous moments, haven't you, in those channels and various different scenarios that you got yourself into? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like Sarah says, you know, I'm probably the biggest danger to myself from the way that I pushed myself. I mean, you know, yes, I came face to face with a tiger shark. You know, that's what everybody kind of attaches to yes Sarah oh it's, it's kind of it's one of those ones where it's a great story to tell but if you do your research which you know obviously I did I'm going to be swimming in beautiful places around the world and um 
you know, beautiful warm oceans tend to have, you know, quite big fish. So, you know, to mitigate the fears, you, you do your research and you study and you look at the, um, the behaviors, you know, we are not fish. We don't smell like fish. We don't taste like fish. We don't move like fish. You look at the um, why sharks attack and when they attack and where they attack. It's around coastal waters and it is in murky, murky waters. And, you know, particularly like in Hawaii, the, the tiger shark, it's a very territorial animal and it will actually rest in sort of inlets or, or um, almost holes in the lava rock where, where the islands are. So the, when I came face to face with this tiger shark after 10 hours of swimming um, in the middle of the night, it was so far out of its sort of territory. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be looking for, um, it wasn't going to be under threat. It was obviously just a young juvenile who was very curious. And so it's, it's a great story to tell where I go, oh my God, da, 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 moment. But actually in reality, I was completely calm and relaxed. It sounds very strange, but there was no way that I could get out of the water without making a splash and making a splash could have shocked the shark and it could have, you know, snapped in, in sort of a, what are you doing? So actually staying calm was all I could do. And then when the shark sort of went underneath me, circled around and actually came to rest with its nose resting against my support kayak. So it had its nose resting against the kayak, which was only two meters away from me at the back end of the kayak when I was sort of treading water. And it hung there in the water for nearly 10 minutes. And it was, to me, that was not fearful. It was actually an incredibly beautiful, blessed moment. I mean, how privileged am I? Because sharks are endangered. The ocean is vast and there's so few of them that I was that close to a passive and you know relaxed, thank goodness, shark that didn't see me as a threat that I didn't perceive as a threat. I didn't feel in danger. I was far more in danger in the previous swim where I swam the Catalina Channel, where I realized only three hours into the swim that the reason I'd been feeling floppy um, was because I had a tummy bug and I started being sick three hours in. Um, I started it coming out both ends about four hours in. I was having shivers and shakes. Um, and what should have been a 10 hour swim became a 19 hour swim, but I couldn't get out the water to redo that swim because you get one day, one time, that's it. And it was the first swim in my Ocean 7 project where I had to try and fit seven channels in a single year. So I pushed myself in that swim knowing that I was ill and knowing that my body could never recover from this. I could get liver failure, I could get kidney issues, you know, and, and riding that balance of feeling compelled to do this and this is the day I've got so I've got to keep swimming by far that was more dangerous than facing a tiger shark in the middle of the night it just makes less of a good story <laughs> brilliant well what a great contrast as well in that um so we have a question from uh, first our first women's Dr Sarah Buck would Sarah Buck like to come forward and ask a question around there we are great i'm unmuted now oh what amazing stories absolutely incredible um and such a privilege to hear them so thank you both of you um a question um for sarah and that's why did you choose the indian ocean and just if i could follow up with both of you um sarah you've mentioned your father and i wondered what um sort of aparental influences on both of you but also the reaction of your parents to what you've done and and how they perceive the great adventures you've been on so questions to both of you <laughs> thank you uh, beth do you want to go first then oh no let sarah go first sorry because you asked that first question there 
That was a killer line, by the way, Beth, when I came face to face with a tiger shark. It's not many people get to say that. Um, as a contrast, by the way, I totally freaked out in the middle of the ocean one day when I had finally got myself into the water for a swim off the edge of my boat. And I um, was feeling quite proud about it. I turned around and did a selfie with the boat and I suddenly saw some bubbles coming up from underneath me and I leapt back into the boat so quickly. And it was just because I'd kicked my legs. They were my own bloody bubbles. There was no fish going to eat me or anything. So I wish I had the calm and composure that, that you had, Beth. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of um, your question, Sarah, uh, about why did I choose the Indian Ocean? So the, the idea of rowing across an ocean at all came to me whilst I was at university. So in 2006, um, there was a race happening across 2005-06. There was a race happening across the Atlantic that Ben Fogel and James Cracknell took part in. So it had lots of publicity, and there was a memo sent round to our university rowing clubs advertising the race. And I immediately, in my very impulsive way, thought, "Wow, you can row across an ocean! How did nobody ever tell me that this exciting thing existed?" And I, I had a strong sense that I would do it. Again, really naively, you know, being a student with less than no money, wanting to, to make this massive project happen. But a bit like how Beth said, you know, if, if other people have done it, I'll find a way to, to do it. And I thought that the Indian Ocean would be a good in ocean to go for because the Pacific is enormous and the, the Atlantic Ocean is something of a motorway <laughs> with ocean rowers. You know, there's not many ocean rowers in the world, but there's still lots going across the Atlantic. So I had this idea of the Indian Ocean would be exciting because I didn't, I didn't really know much about it. Um, and I ended up going solo on that journey. When you talk about parental influences, um, I ended up going solo on that journey in memory of, of my father. Um, originally I wanted to row as part of a team, but my dad died six months or so after I'd made that decision or, or first heard about ocean rowing rather. And it had then in, you know, in that sort of moment, I suppose, or that, that period of reeling from the grief of, of my dad being mortal, you know, that sort of big smack in the face when you realize that immortality or, or, or that mortality is a real thing, that um, it was a very personal journey beyond just having a, a huge adventure. And it didn't make sense to me to row with other people who wouldn't have known my dad now that it had become this sort of metaphor really for, for getting through grief. And I, I very much treated that ocean or my sense of how I knew I'd be able to do it because I thought I've survived grief. By the time I got to the ocean, you know, I'd, I'd had to finish off my degree and, and raise the money and, and earn the money and build the boat and do the training. It had been three years since dad had died. And so I had this strong sense of, well, I've, I've made it three years into grief. So I, I will make it through whatever the ocean throws at me. Um, and in terms of parental influences and what, what they said when I told them. So when I announced at my dad's funeral that I planned to row across the Indian Ocean in his memory, everybody laughed, which is something as a version of what dad had done when I'd said to him, some months before oh dad by the way I'm going to row across an ocean and I had a sense when I sort of thought about it afterwards I had a sense that he was probably laughing because he knew that I would go and do it um, 
and certainly my mum was very supportive, really worried. When people ask about, you know, how did your mum cope knowing you were out there by yourself on your own? My mum's amazing. She just said that she didn't think about me being out there on my own in the middle of the ocean. Um, and I thought, how do you do that when I might ring up in tears to tell you that I've just capsized? You know, how do you how do you put that to one side in your head? Um, but anyway, mum, my mum's always been really supportive of my my journey. She was quite worried when I told her after the, the Pacific storm where I'd been rescued and, and come back to the UK. When I said to her mum, I found a way to buy another boat and I'm going to go back in six months. She had tears in her eyes and I, I really understand why as well, because I, I hadn't been coping. I, I was in that really dark place. But for me, the idea of getting back to the ocean, a bit like the idea of using the Indian Ocean as a way to get through grief, for me, going back to the Pacific for another, another shot at it was, was my way of getting through it. Um, and there was something really, what's the word? It, was, it sort of just felt visceral that I still loved the ocean just because that had happened and it had been this really traumatic event that I, I would still go back to the ocean and have incredible experiences, hopefully not face to face with tiger sharks, but you know, face to face with other really cool wildlife that I agree with what Beth says there, that it's a, an immense privilege to be with these beings that you, you don't ordinarily get to hang out with. Um, what, what became more challenging was once I, I got together with Lucy um, and I found certainly that being away from home for months, years at a time, whilst being in a relationship was both wonderful and, and powerful in terms of this draw to come home and I had this wonderful support and so on, but um, it, it made it much more difficult to be away as well. Um, so... Yeah, I feel really lucky in that nobody ever, nobody close to me or, or sort of important to me ever tried to stop me or, or to, to, you know, tell me that I shouldn't be doing it or anything like that. I feel really, really lucky in that respect. Yeah, thank That's you. Really interesting. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for being so honest as well. So, Deb, do, you, do you want to, did Beth want, did you have a question for Beth? You did, didn't you, as well? It was same really about parental influence and, and what so yeah i have kind of the opposite um experience from sarah and i think partly because i was um a new a fairly young single mum my little boy was um three when i swam the english channel um my family thought it was absolutely not what i should be doing um and swimming was a, a curse word in our household and um yeah it was it was really quite challenging because because of my health history, um, I think my family were thinking that I was trying to destroy myself and I wouldn't be able to look after Dylan and didn't understand my need for, for testing my own boundaries and, and, and to, because I had lost all trust in my body. I couldn't, you know, when I was at my earlist when I was 17, I couldn't tell you if I could get out of the chair in an hour, if I could put myself in there, you know, because I might not be able to, because my ME was so bad. So I had this distrust in my body still, you know, at the age of 30 and, you know, single motherhood is, is terrifying. You know, you, you wake at night wondering how you're going to cope on an ordinary day. Um, and so, you know, to have that fear of getting ill, it was this compulsion to test myself and my family didn't understand it. And I think they were quite afraid and um, 
Yeah, and and so that came out in um, if you want to do it, then do it behind closed doors. You know, we're we're not going to take any part in it. Mm. So that threw up a lot of challenges in its own way. Of you know, I mean, childcare for my son. So you know, looking at swimming the channel, this is why I I engaged him and involved him in my training because I had to. You know, and and one of the great things about little kids is you know, as I'm he loved being thrown up in the air and caught, and as he got bigger, I got stronger, and he learned to count sitting on my back while I did press ups. And he did. I towed him in a dinghy with brilliant resistance training. You know, it's just the best thing you can do It's you know, people tie things to their ankles. I had a child going, go, mummy. He would sit on my hips in the swimming pool, making me swim lengths, thinking it was the best thing on the planet. So, you know, I saw it as this really amazing bonding experience with my son, mm-hmm. which, you know, hearing Sarah talk about the support always makes me feel tearful because it, that is more normal for families to be very supportive and to want to see you off and to be worried and and you know I know that my family were worried mm. um but I don't I haven't had that experience and, and and it took a long time I mean it took so I swam the English Channel in 2010 um 2012 sorry and it took until 2017 for my mum and I to be able to talk about it and for her to actually kind of come to the place where she started to realize that her fear and resistance to it was because my motherhood looked so different to her version that she thought I must be rejecting hers Mm -hmm. and I could actually then say I am the strong mother I am because of you I am the independent woman because of you so it's not a rejection of your motherhood that I'm doing it differently I just have different urges different passions and, and and different needs in my life to answer and you did an amazing job of making me the person I am. And, and that started to kind of soften the edges. Mm. Um, and, and so the, 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 I mean, they're not particularly small. So since I stopped my, the channel swimming, I've been using my body in a different way with water. Water is where the world makes sense to me and it's what I love. So I've been looking at, I wanted to swim past an iceberg. So, you know, I wanted to swim. I swam 30 meters below the surface of a glacier in, in the Hintertux Glacier. It just, I want to be able to take my body to beautiful places rather than to push it to great lengths, just to be able to see what the body can do in, in less kind of damaging ways than endurance for me, because with the ME triggers, I have to watch that. So my mum is happier now that, I mean, actually, I think she's happier because my son is now the one who's calling the shots. He wants to see me jump in icy holes. He wants the one... You know, he's the one who wants to go to Alaska to hike into the middle of nowhere in a yurt in the winter. Um, so she can now see that it is more of a, a it is my motherhood rather than me rejecting and, and avoiding. So it's a very, very different kind of story. Um, my family just don't get it. And that's OK. They're different people. Um, in some ways, they're proud. In some ways, they just don't get it. And that's OK. Yeah, I bet they're really proud. But it's the worry of motherhood, I think. Don't you? Do, yeah. It'll be interesting when Dylan does his, I don't know if he has done any adventures, but if he does, you know, how you feel about what he's doing, because he'll have control of his adventure. It won't yes. Whereas you have control of your adventures. I think it, it is partly about that, isn't it? Oh, Toad is terrifying, the thought of him. He, so he's he's only 12. He's autistic yeah. with complex needs and um, he's a he's a climber. Yeah. Um, you know, that he just can't help but climb. So when he was three, I put a climbing wall around his bedroom to yeah. stop him from pulling the curtain rails down. And then when he was five, it had to go up the stairs because it wasn't challenging enough. And yeah, it's terrifying. I just, you know, I don't want to know that he comes over the banister and climbs down the stairwell for breakfast. Mm. Uh, so I, I get the fear. I do get, <laughs> yes, he does, Sarah, it's terrifying. 
um just don't just don't look just don't look it's fine but i would rather know um i would rather know and actually support him having yeah. had the 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 kind of the the shut door thing it's terrifying i would rather white knuckle ride it and smile and nod yeah. and and you know be there um yeah so that he knows he's being witnessed and and whatever he chooses to throw at me whether he wants to get a job at 16 as a postman and still be there at 65 or whether he wants to do a different adventure every month you know either one is absolutely fine with me brilliant thank you very much Beth. Thank you both. Very detailed and very interesting answers. Um, just to sort of coming off that, do you, do you think uh, there is still an adventurous spirit in the modern world, both of you? And where do you see it most? Um, just briefly, Sarah, do you think there's still an adventurous spirit around? I think there is an adventurous spirit around, definitely. And I, I really like how this last year of covid sort of imposing such restrictions on our lives and and forcing people inside and sort of saying you know you can only go outside once a day how my sense of it is that that's drawn more people outside to places and sort of just shown them how important it is to to have that and how people have sought connection with themselves and um nature more more locally to home so yeah i i definitely think um there's a sense of adventure there. It's maybe there's differences too in how it was even 10 years ago with um, you know, just technology and phones and, and all of that. But I, I see those things as being a real um a real asset to people finding out and connecting and, and joining with others in in search of adventure type things. So yeah, alive and well. And close I think also, also I think what's happened is. I mean, I found um, when I stepped away from the channel swimming, I was asked so many times in the adventure circuit to talk about a different version of success, not mm -hmm. just this bigger, better, faster, more. So I think the adventuring spirit has morphed a little bit that people are wanting that intrapersonal kind of journey and, and seeing adventure as to the journey that you go on rather than getting to your goal you don't have to get to the top of the mountain it's what you learn on the way so i think adventuring spirit's really there but i think we are actually asking different questions of our adventures so they can be more subtle or you know less um i'm the first person or i'm the fastest or i'm this and it is it really is that kind of what you learn about it and i think social media has really shown us that there are so many people being totally honest and you know the adventure that sarah's been on recently that has nothing to do with stepping outside our house has really been inspirational about, you know, exposing your own personal journeys. And that is adventure. Life is an adventure. And sharing that, I think, is vital. And so, yeah, I think adventuring spirit is definitely alive and well. We're just looking at it differently, which is great. Brilliant. OK, just a quick one. Superstitious, superstitions. Do either of you have any special, did you have when you were doing your challenges, have any superstitious activities or behaviours that you had to do certain things? I'm not a superstitious type the only thing that I did and it sounds quite morbid but the night before I did a channel swim my son would come with me to wherever I was staying the closest point to where I was going to be swimming from so he'd be with childcare. Um, I would put him to bed and then I'd go off with my lead support um, member and I would talk about what happens if I die on that channel swim and it sounds morbid but I needed it to not be in my head for the 24 hours that it was going to take for me to you know go in in the water and I needed to put that down um, so it was not so much a superstition, but it became a ritual and it was and it was vital that I did it. 
to talk through what I wanted them, the steps that they had to take so that at no point did that ever become a demon in my head when I face a tiger shark or, you know, I could just go through the emotional stuff that, that had nothing to do with that. So that was the only thing that I did. Brilliant. And Sarah? Not superstitious, no, but similar version, but just different of sort of ritual and routine and discipline of, of those things um, in certain situations, knowing that, um, you know, because I was remote or, or often by myself and, and if I lost something or didn't do something in the right order that actually that could have huge huge consequences um like being washed away and nobody would know where i was so um not so much super superstition but just yeah ritual and, and routine about the orders in which i did things so that i didn't forget because you know when you're super stressed and um tired and everything's kicking off around you perhaps um you just need to make sure that doing everything you can to come home safely and there was a lot I remember on your first um, row in the Indian there was I'm, I was fascinated by all the food different foods that you'd eat and how you'd make them different each day although they weren't really <laughs> and you dressed them up with different sources and that was you know just little things like that where you're having to well especially being on your own you know create some sort of relief I guess too Definitely. I think the, you know, how, how to keep yourself entertained when you're by yourself for months and months at a time um, is, is often a question that comes up. I Strangely, I find it quite easy. Um, I, I guess I'm pretty good with my own company, really good at talking to myself uh, and can have all sorts of different daft conversations with myself and just memories. And I think for me, I don't know about you, Beth, but in being in solitude, in nature I, it does just feel like such a connecting experience to myself and this wonderful um spaciousness often i mean this is the good times the, the yeah. crappy times are just how can i survive and, and what have you but when it feels really good and i'm in flow then just being so present with myself and, and the world is um is just so wonderful so yeah that diverges off from what you said, Anita. Yeah, but it's um, yeah, being on your own and and uh, being on your own for months on end. I know you have your telephone, but yeah, being you have to be able to be happy on your own, don't you? And also, what how would you what would you say to help people who didn't want to be on their own? Is there anything that you could advise them? Well, this is such an interesting thing because last year, when the first COVID lockdown happened. I thought quite in quite a sort of blasé naive fashion I suppose like oh I can do solitude that's fine I I don't need to be around people but of course it's really different isn't it I'd chosen to be in solitude um, and I had a very um, specific goal that I'd chosen that I was working towards whereas suddenly a, a sort of a, a circumstances outside of my control had, had enforced this way of being that actually I very quickly realized I wasn't um, enjoying in the way that I'd imagined um, but it's just sort of simple things, I suppose, like trying to find, um, trying to find good things about the day, things to be grateful for, even on a really tough, tough day. If I could just say, thank goodness today is over. <laughs> well, thank goodness I'm alive. That would be a, a good thing. And finding, finding things that help me come back into a sort of a present connection with myself or a connection to the earth or some other being even if it wasn't directly, but, you know, hands in the soil outside or um, hanging out with the donkeys was important. So I think connection is, is important and, and movement and, and 
time outside somehow, even if you can't physically get outside, is there a way to look at some sort of picture of a horizon or, or something? And I think just that um, fundamental thing that can be so difficult sometimes in asking for help and you know being authentic about how vulnerable you feel um, is, is really important too. Because I think we often feel versions of lonely or um, you know that things are tough and actually just connecting with with some others or some organization that can help get you through to the next bit where it doesn't feel quite so tough is yeah, yeah sure my is. way of coping anyway thank you so we've got a question here from um another first woman judith major judith webb and she's got a question about yeah she's got a question about what's 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 next do you have any challenges that you would like to do now in, in this stage in your life um where is it let me just check it um yeah oh where are we where? yes she's saying judith webb is saying oh, judith, would you like to ask it yes yeah, sorry jump in yeah, there we sure, go yeah sure uh, no i was just thinking you've both achieved the most amazing challenges and do you still have a particular challenge in another way that you feel you need to achieve a different ambition at this stage at uh, this stage of your lives yeah, so I'm surviving um, an autistic teenager, basically. That's my big adventure. Hey, <laughs> that's fun. Um, no, so we actually, COVID stopped play last year. Dylan's, Dylan's next adventure for me was to throw me into the Arctic Ocean. Um, so we were due to go to Svalbard so that I could swim past an iceberg and be chased by a walrus. That's what Dylan's plan was. Um, so we were due to do that, but COVID stopped play. So potentially that's still on the cards. Um, if, as and when, either of us want to sit in an airplane and live in air conditioning for a while with other people, which we're not really rushing towards at this moment. But yeah, like I say, every day is an adventure and surviving adolescent autists. And Sarah? So I am training as a psychotherapist and um, an equine therapist as, as um and an equine therapy training as, as part of that. And uh, that's my current adventure. Um, and Lucy and I are also keen to start a family, which having just heard all of Beth's tales, I know that that will be a massive adventure and challenge as well. <laughs> well, the donkeys can be a wonderful amazing. <laughs> um, thanks, thanks, Judith, that's wonderful. And um, we've got a question from Clive and he wants me to ask it. So. Um, he wants Clive Bowman in uh, Budley Salterton wants to know is there anything you regret that happened during your first Beth go for it uh, during my first during my swim to the Isles of Scilly um, the thing I think I have no regrets whatsoever so I had a virgin crew and a virgin pilot because obviously it had never been done before um, and the pilot um, wanted to keep me on his side of the boat so he could always keep an eye on me, which absolutely was his right and a very good thing. If our, my crew had been more um, experienced, they would have said, no, you watch the water. My job is to watch her. Because what happened was we had um, a very, very gentle tailwind, which meant that the diesel fumes basically sat over the top of me. And after about 10 hours of swimming, I became really dangerously sick and started to get carbon monoxide poisoning because I couldn't breathe oxygen, um, which actually, you know, quite endangered me quite much. So my regret, it's not really a regret, but it would have been having had um, a more uh, experienced team on board for me to actually kind of make that separation from the pilot boat being in control of, of the water surrounds 
and my crew being in control of, of my well-being that would have alleviated that but I, I completed the swim and so you know all is great and and Sarah gosh it's, it's interesting that uh, my my answer has a version of, of yours, Beth. So my first, my Indian Ocean um, row, I was so focused on, can I get out to sea and just do it, that I had paid no attention to landing. And um, in a similar sort of version, I kind of handed over control to a local who promised everything, all the chat, all of this, and it turned out he didn't have a flipping clue. And I ended up crash landing onto a coral reef um, in a way that yeah damaged my boat nearly cost me my life you know had it gone slightly differently I wouldn't be here today and my mum was watching all of it so um, again I'm not uh, well maybe it's a regret I don't know at this stage in the game I sort of think well it was just a massive learning about don't go giving control to, to people that you don't know and you don't trust without sort of doing your due diligence um, so yeah, it's interesting. Big learning for both of us on that first one, Beth. Good, good. Well, we're near coming to the end. We've just got one more quick question from Jill Pay, who'd like to ask Beth a question. Jill, are you there? Yes, another, I am. Another first, you, another first. Um, yes, Beth, you've you've answered my question a little bit, but I loved your stories about you, how you've involved Dylan in your training and everything. But do you have, uh, and I know your adventures have all been on your own, but do you have any plans or have you had any challenges with him but he's been part of this? Yeah, yeah so, I mean, the, 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 the English, the, the, well, the, the swims, he doesn't come on the boat because he doesn't want to and I don't want him there. Um, he's there a lot for my trainings. So, you know, we've got up to a good couple of hours of, you know, going out in some quite fun conditions. Um, we went, he's, when I, when I finished my last swim of the Ocean Seven, I sort of felt very proud of myself and went back to the hotel and said, sweetheart, I've finished. Um, I will be your mummy now. And he looked at me and said, you're a bit of a disappointment, mother. And I was like, oh, ow. And I said, oh, why? And he said, because we'll never adventure again. And uh -huh. I made the classic mistake of saying, that's okay, sweetheart, you can choose our next adventure. And he literally didn't draw breath before he said, oh, good, we're going to stay in Alaska in a yurt in the snow in February. <laughs> and we're going to walk there. And I was like, all right, um, okay so actually the joy of that adventure was to make it happen and to research you know do, is that possible are yeah. there yurts that stay up year-round could the public access it so yes we um got a friend who lived in alaska to give us a plastic meat packing sled we loaded <laughs> borrowed camping gear up and we found this public access yurt in a nature reserve that thought we were mad, but they had a, a wood burning stove and, and a platform, sleeping platform. And we hiked for three hours through it, uh, his hike, waist deep snow, to get to this public access yurt by a frozen river and, and stayed there for a week. And it was the most amazing thing. So yes, involving wow. him in, in adventures yeah. now is, is my joy because I feel like I've won. I've, yeah. I've won the parenting thing for the moment. But, you know, to, for having him to reach out and point and say, let's yeah. do that, or this looks amazing. And to get that to, to happen shows me that I can make his dreams a reality. Mm. So it's, it's teaching him that, um, the process that, you know, it happens. Mm. It's not always comfortable, but it, it can be a lot of fun. But it's fantastic that he had that dream already. <laughs> I don't know, know where it came from. Land. I, oh, it's amazing. I so admire you, both of you. You're absolutely awesome women. You really are. Oh, thank thanks, you. John. That's a great question to end on. But can I just ask the same sort of thing for, from Sarah? 
What what was the moment of greatest joy, Sarah? Oh, that's always such a tricky question. Oh. So many moments of great joy. Um, so really just such a special story for me was um, the story of a young guy called Gao who I met in China. So I'd been on the road for, um, for a few months at that point on my round the world journey and I met him at a petrol station he was so intrigued excited by my bike and what I was doing where I was going wanted to make a journey of his own but he didn't know how and he said he didn't think he was strong enough couldn't train all of this and I said it's just a bike like get a bike and a bag I think there's a bike for everybody if you don't want to do the pedaling you get a tandem uh, if you want a little lie down you get a recumbent you get a hand bike if your legs don't work so well. And I said, just go and have a go and learn. And you know, you'll learn something. And anyway, half an hour down the road, he came and declared that he wanted to come with me on a bike to ride across China to Beijing. Um, and I, I took a little bit, bit of persuasion to say, yeah, okay, sure, come and have a go. And let's see what happens. And so he rode for 35 days across China with me, which is extraordinary given that he, you know, moments before telling me he wanted to do that, he didn't think that he could. So to see him, a bit like you said, Beth, you know, showing Dylan the process of making a journey happen, to see Gao go through that process of learning and becoming confident in himself and now going on to do his own journeys, well, not just now, but like immediately afterwards going on to do his own journeys, that was such a, a joy and, um, yeah, such a joy and a, a pleasure, really. Brilliant. And just now, just so everybody knows, both of these women, amazing women that they are, have actually got films, which if you could both tell us, the films and Sarah's written a couple of books, and they are really worth, you know, to find out more about the rest of these wonderful adventures. So do you want, Sarah, just give a bit of a plug for your film and the books? Yeah, the film is called Home, An Outward Journey Inward. You can find that uh, on Vimeo or by googling Sarah Uten home and then the books are a dip in the ocean and dare to do and when someone said what what are you planning next I really need to write the follow-up book which is dare to be fantastic and Beth and you've got a, a film which is doing brilliantly around the world too haven't you yeah so um, I was really lucky that my last project about um the ocean seven project uh, was made into a, a feature documentary called against the tides which is out on itunes and Yay, next week we'll have DVDs, hurrah! So yes, that will be available um, against the tidesfilm.com or my website, bethfrench.co.uk. So there you go. If you want more, and I'm sure you do, please do go and find those detailed personal uh, accounts, which are absolutely spine tinglingly brilliant to watch and read. Uh, so yeah, Deborah, thank you for putting them in the chat. Yeah, so if you want to look on the chat, take a quick picture of the chat, you can see Deborah's put the uh, links up there, fantastic. Um, so all I can say now is what a brilliant, brilliant session. Thank you so much, both of you, wonderful women of the water um, for inspiring everybody and just making us all wanna keep on looking out there and going on adventures and stretching as far as we possibly can. And yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, both of you. Yeah, so if you want, everybody want to unmute, we can have a little clap. <laughs> Let's go for it. Hey, clapping. clapping. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. And we'll see you all again in, uh, on the 17th of August is the next First Women Live. We'll let you know who our guests are going to be. 
Um, and until then, yeah. have it, enjoy the rest of July. Enjoy, hopefully, the sunshine. We can't see us. We can't be seen. And um, we will see you all very, very soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.